following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez, my name is Satchel Drakes, and this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. How's it going, man? So, did you uh, indulge in any of the Steam sales over the summer? I usually do. Yeah? Yeah. I I did a bit of shopping. Okay. I got some sweet deals. What's in the hall? What's in... Okay. Psychonauts. Great game. 99 cents. I already beat it when I was 16, but I have it. It's legendary, and yeah. it holds up pretty well. Yeah, I got Unreal Gold. Influential game. I don't know if it's any good still. <laughs> but dude, not. <laughs> 199 Come on. That's pretty good. Tomb Raider, 140 Shadow Warrior, Downwell. All like under $2, man. Like Wait, The new Tomb Raider? Okay, that was $5. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. But come on. That's a how, steal. How do you pass up those deals? You don't. You don't leave those alone. I'm killing it on this Steam summer sale buying game. Deaded. Yeah. It's been like, what, two months since that, though? Yeah, it's been a minute. We're, we're creeping up on fall. Yeah. It, we are. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I don't think I've played maybe, I've played maybe like one, two, and I didn't finish them. Yeah. So they're just sitting there, undownloaded, just just taking up space. <laughs> On my computer. Oh, that's so normal. <laughs> so expected. <laughs> it feels familiar to you, right? Yeah, that feels pretty... That's our lives. That is all of us, actually. Yeah. yeah. I kind of want to talk about this, where I have 200 games that, that 200 are... 200 games. On Steam. Matthew. On Steam. Probably more on GOG. And Humble Bundle that I'm not even aware of. They're, oh, you double down on all the services. There are children okay. I'm not aware of. Like, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> and I kind of, I don't. That's a lot of child support. <laughs> I just don't get it. Uh, I kind of want to explore this. So how how are you with uh, summer sales? With summer sales? Any sales. Um, I usually, so I haven't. Um, I think I'm a bit too embarrassed to plug in my Steam ID and the Steam calculator and find out just how much money I wasted. But every season, it's so hard. Like, I'm just, I'm all up in that Twitterverse and everybody's like, oh my gosh, there's a sale going on. And I'm like, I need to be a part of that because reasons. So, <laughs> and I end up pulling the trigger on a couple of things. And, um, you know, I'm probably with you. <laughs> yeah. I haven't really dug in on all of them. For the uninitiated, Steam is a digital marketplace from Valve. And an addiction. And an addiction. You go on there, and there's if you're playing on the PC, this is primarily where you're getting your games from. Right. And it also serves as your library. You launch your games from there. And oftentimes, throughout the year, they'll have a spring sale, summer sale, autumn sales coming up. I'm really excited for that, to buy a bunch of games. And the deals are really good. Like, we're talking 50 to 80% off, sometimes 90% off. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. And how do you pass that up? You don't, typically. 
in my mind, what happens often is like a new game comes out, gets a great review. So I'm like, I'm really excited to play that when it gets discounted like 70% in uh, a few months, basically. Right. And Or if you're into multiplayer, they have those team those team discounts where it's like, yeah, if like three of you get it, you get like this crazy discount. You just end up going in with friends and getting it and maybe playing it. Maybe. There's also Humble Bundle, which is like such a cool concept where they will set up a bundle uh, weekly. They also have like a monthly one where you'll pay what you want for this kind of a themed collection of games and they just give you a bunch of you know a, a lot of it goes to charity which is great right which is probably it's probably the best way yeah. to the best version of being best non-committal of yeah because you never play the games but you help people yes and but the thing is like just to go through my email i like i sometimes have this like oh, i kind of want to maybe do some um, tidying up with my collection. Let me go through my emails to all the, <laughs> the Humble Bundle emails that have my Steam codes and maybe put maybe them in. Maybe paste them over. How many have you pasted over, Matthew? Man, there's like 15 to 20 emails. And each one probably has like 10 games in them. And a lot of them are doubles, I assume. Like, mm-hmm. at some point, you're probably doubling up. Mm-hmm. That's also the other problem is like... At some point, like, you realize that the same games get discounted, and you've started to, like, get all of the ones you actually ever wanted. But the other problem is, for some reason, you just don't sit down and play them. What ends up happening is, I jump on Counter-Strike and put another 200 hours into that. Or League of Legends and put another 35 days into that. <laughs> it's like, why don't I sit down and play a new game that I haven't exhausted and uh, am just using to waste time? Just weird phenomenon. Matt, I have words of counsel for you. (laughs) I have words of comfort for you. You're not alone. There we go. According to some extensive research by Ars Technica, 37% of games that have been sold on Steam or registered to Steam accounts through uh, through other means have actually never been played. That's nuts. Yeah. They went through 172 million Steam community pages, all kind of public because they are by nature. And they took a sample of about 250,000 valid Steam community profiles. And combined with public and private sales data, they found out that, yeah, really more than a third of people aren't playing the game. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> I have another one for you. So there's uh, SteamDB is a database for Steam accounts. Most of these things are public. Right. (laughs) And there is, of course, a leaderboard for uh, the most games in your library. Right. Number one guy has 18,000 games. Games not played, 97%. Pragmatic. Yes, yes. And that's the same thing. Like, the account value, which is, you know, what they are typically... um, This is a Steam calculator. yeah, Yeah, what what they cost typically. Yeah. It's one hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, <laughs> cash, real cash. Yeah, and that's that database or that leaderboard. Most of the people are there. Over a hundred thousand account value with, you know, may, at best fifty percent. Which I will say, if you have what fifteen thousand games <laughs> and you're playing fifty percent of them, good on you. <laughs> this might be a meta commentary on Americans. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It makes me think of the app store where they have the I'm Rich app. Have you heard of this? No. It's literally this app called I'm Rich, and it costs $9,999. And the sole reason it's there 
is you download the app and it just says I'm rich. That's it. And the only reason the price is what it is is because it's the highest that you can max an app on the store. <laughs> that is genius. Just Whoever <laughs> came up with that is brilliant. You know, they probably are, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what what do you attribute this, this to? Like, is it um, okay. vanity? Like, people just want to say, like, you know, I got 400 games. You know, actually, I actually don't think it's that. Though, though I do think the ratio of money spent to, like, utilization is kind of similar. I think the motives are different. So here, I, I have a conspiracy theory. Okay. I think that it is a combination of Slick Deal's mentality, which is a, a, a term that I coined. Oh, so okay. I will unpack that for you. And the Netflix Q effect, which is a real term. Um, both of those. So st- starting with the Slick Deal's mentality. So there's a website called Slick Deal's. And it's pretty much known for being the site that people can capitalize on really good deals. It's kind of like a really nice looking forum where people will be like, Hey, Best Buy has like 50% off toasters for some reason. And, um, in college I used to live with these guys who were just all about, they were all about the deal. They were all about slick deals. And what I started to realize, especially living with one of them, um, packages would arrive at our door all the time. And at first I used to really just sort of, I guess, be jealous of how like they were able to find these amazing deals on like things that would otherwise cost, two, three times as much as they typically do. But then I started to realize that they weren't using any of the things they were getting and that there was actually a bit of uh, a, a bit of a game to capitalizing on these offers, capitalizing on this opportunity. Um, that So f- that kind of explains the half of uh, collecting that I guess seems so pervasive and in some ways insidious, but... Uh, the other half is Netflix Q mentality. And essentially what that is, is years ago, um, before we had my list, uh, Netflix had what's called a Netflix Q. And in it, like, you would have, like, just this bevy of amazing movies and TV shows that you can watch. And in it, uh, people, Netflix would look at their analytics and, and they realized that people were running into this issue where, uh, for the streaming service specifically, there was so much good and compelling content that people were spelling, spending more time trying to figure out what they were going to watch than actually pulling the trigger on it. And essentially what it is is um, it's what uh, psychologist Benjamin Scheiben calls choice paralysis, where – picture this. Here's a story. You get home from work. You sit down on the couch. You fumble. You find your remote. Turn on Netflix. You decide to go to the British television section because everybody keeps talking about Black Mirror and how amazing it is and how it's the end of the world. You look at it. You start thinking, you know what? Actually, I'd rather rather watch a movie. There are a lot of good movies here. You read through the synopsis. By the time you get to the end of it, you realize you don't want to watch it anymore. And you do some calculations in your head and you realize that the runtime of the movie is like longer than how how long you're going to stay awake before you go to sleep. And you put your remote away and you go to bed frustrated that you wasted so much time not even picking a thing to enjoy. And it's just that idea that like there are so many good that you have this you've accrued this list of compelling games. You sit and you watch it. You look at it every single day and you just never pull the trigger because there are so many options. That hit home so hard. <laughs> I'm just imagining. I I waste up to three to four hours doing that, and it'll be like 2 a.m. I'm like, 
am I really doing this right now? It's going to go to bed. Yeah, dude, it's such a phenomenon that does not even begin with digital things. Like, you can talk about it. You can talk about it. Same thing with dating. Like, okay, Cupid, running the same issue where you have all these different options. You uh, Commitment becomes so much harder because there's so many potential timelines for romance. You know what I mean? Um, but even dating before that, uh, in the year 2000, Sheena Iyengar, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, she conducted a much-cited study looking at the amount of jam samples in a grocery store um, and how it affects sales. And in short, the solution is the more variety there are of jam, the less people buy jam. This is why I like breakfast. There's like I went there. Three things. There's three options. You don't have to like. There's no paralysis there. It's right. Like I'm just gonna get eggs, man. I do. I also. So there's a site called How Long to Beat, and. Mm. Man, I, I use that so often to try to figure out what game I want to play. Where I'm mm. like, okay, let's see how long The Witcher is. Ah, 40 hours. Do I want to commit my time to that? But it's not it, It's not like it's a 40-hour movie. It's like right. I could put like an hour or two into it every single day, and it's like a book. Like Eventually, we get through it, and it's just like you return to it and, when you're ready. Yeah. And it shouldn't be this big obstacle in your mind that like, no, it's going to take 40 hours. Can you imagine how long that is? Right. And it's like... I don't get it, but it's still, it, 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 you know, I'm in a stasis where I'm like, oh no, let me look at this game. Oh, it's two hours, but I don't know. I yeah. can watch a movie too. <laughs> yeah, no, that's real. I'm sure that's coupled with, especially if you just think about the idea that this really is a game and you're dealing with gamers, um, that, that, that chase of the feeling of achievement, of satisfaction. I mean, this is probably what makes the trophy system so pervasive. That idea that, oh, but I could finish, I can complete this, you know, but mm-hmm. bum, 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 I can complete this thing. It, it, it probably, like, ugh. Well, that's the thing. That's like, stressful. You feel like you're going to win Steam. It's like, you're not. And then you also go, like, well, I'm going to collect everything. Like, it's Pokemon. It's like, you're not. Someone's <laughs> way ahead of you. <laughs> By about you know exponentially more than you actually. Someone's bought all thirty of those Flappy Bird clones, oh, and yeah. you are you're lagging behind, <laughs> bro. You're lagging behind. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I do think there is something to that. Where what is it? You know, as gamers, like you know, growing up in the '90s, what, what's like the biggest genres? Platformers. Yeah, and like what what do you do in platformers? You jump and you collect things. That's correct. Get a hundred coins in Super Mario sixty four. You get a star, man. That's right. So, like, I, I think of this as, like, I just want to collect more and more and more until it's complete. But it's never going to be complete. And it's not even a thing. Like, an, you could, like, take that mentality and and be smart and go, like, well, maybe I'll just complete this game and I'll feel good about it. And it's like, no, I have to complete this, like, Sisyphusian, like, it's never going to end. Like, it's just ridiculous. Um, so I definitely feel that way. Um, I don't know. So... Maybe I don't know what what's the solution here do you do, do you think uh mm, I think uh, I don't think there's a big solution <laughs> I will so so so, so I, I do have a solution so in in the rabbit hole that I kind of fell down researching this topic um what I did fall in you want like a legit the, the closest kind of solution I found for this sure. okay it's hard okay I have a Louis CK remedy to this problem. It's called the seventy percent rule. <laughs> I don't know if we're ready for this, so I'm I'm going I'm going to read this quote. Okay, are you ready for this? Okay, okay. So uh, these situations where I can't make a choice because I'm too busy trying to envision the perfect one, 
that that false perfectionism traps you in this painful ambivalence. If I do this, then that other thing I could have done becomes attractive. But if I could go and choose the other one, the same thing happens again. It's part of our consumer culture. Uh, people who do this trying to get, like, whether they're trying to get, like, a DVD player or a service provider, uh, but it also bleeds into big decisions. So my rule is that if you have someone or something that gets 70% approval, you just do it. Because here's what happens. The fact that other options go away immediately brings your choice to 80 to 80%, uh, because the pain of deciding is over. And, he continues, when you get to 80%, you work. You apply your knowledge, and that gets you to 85%. And the thing itself, especially if it's a human being, will always reveal itself 100% of the time to be more than what you thought. And that will get you to 90%. And after that, you're stuck at 90 But who the F do you think you are? A god? You got to 90%. It's incredible. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so if you feel 70% on playing a game, just play it. <laughs> That's my remedy. You come home, you feel good about it, just do it. Yeah, yeah. And after that, it just kind of fulfills itself in its own way. <laughs> I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this in, in, in many things, but yes. Yeah. But I, I do feel like there is sort of like – I feel like the things that Steam sales kind of exhibit – uh, do feel very much like the standard pillars of gamification. So um, in case nobody kind of knows what gamification is, um, the traditional mechanics of it include administering badges or rewards based on revenue. There are a lot of corporations that gamify services that aren't games. So, you know, for example, I mean, the most traditional thing, let's think about Foursquare, where you kind of have this journey to go to all these different locations and they give you these badges or like, I'm the first person that showed up and it incentivizes you like being more adventurous. Um, that's kind of the consumer facing goal. But Foursquare's goal is they have a bunch of data on where a bunch of people are all the time and like they can use that and sell that for money. You know, um, I think it's a little bit different with Steam stuff, though I, there there are achievements, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are achievements. So that, that definitely is a part of it. Actually, yeah, that is a part of it. Man, that's insidious. But also, um, in addition to that, Steam sales tend to that t- tend to harp on deals that are likened more to Woot.com, Yeti, the Yeti.com, the Yeti.com. So, for example, the Yeti.com is like this. Uh, it's well relevant. It's this gaming centric site where um, every day they have a different T-shirt that they sell, um, and it's usually like something nerdy, something really fun. The art's pretty cool, and like. In it, you have 24 hours to pull the trigger on it. And if you don't, like, it's just gone forever. And the shirts are usually priced at, like, I don't know, like $10, something, like, really affordable. You know what I mean? And the intersect, if I know the, the intersection of those two things, the idea that something is really temporary, it's going to go away, and that it's a really good deal, tends to draw people in to wanting to, like, get it. And I almost wonder, I mean, Steam is very similar in the fact that the seasonal sale, you have a great deal on titles. They're good titles. Some of them are AAA titles or, like, critically acclaimed ones. And you have, what, like, a weekend? Mm-hmm. And then all the social chatter around it makes you feel like it, it, it breaks you. You want to dive into it. And we end up in the situation where we've spent hundreds of dollars on video games and we haven't <laughs> played all of them. Nope. <laughs> and it's a mess. And they, they put the little the, the, the timer next to it. And yeah. Like, this price <laughs> is going to go away in a day. Exactly. <laughs> and you're just like, all right, well, I'll just buy it and look at it later. Yeah. I think I literally do that. I just buy it, look at it later. Well, that's the thing. Like, you buy it, you walk away. Yeah. yeah. If they put Apple Pay or something, I'm done. Oh man, yeah. If they put tangent, if they put if I, if I can use Face ID for that, I'm also done. I just gotta look at my phone and be like, I want that. I just, yeah. I just have it. That's a problem. If I could just look at it and be like, I want that. 
It would be a problem. <laughs> so we talked to a psychologist um, to figure out uh, why we obsessively buy these games, never play them, and why everyone else, it seems, in the gaming community does the same thing. Hope we can find some help. So with us right now is Randy Frost, a professor of psychology at Smith College with an expertise in hoarding and compulsion. Thanks for taking time to talk to us, Randy. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So do you know what a Steam is? No. So Steam is a digital marketplace for video games, PC games, and um, it's it's kind of like a... Uh, like you know, iTunes, of yeah, sorts. sort of like an yeah. iTunes. Yeah, okay. that's a good uh, comparison. And uh, yeah, there's there's constant sales for games and whatnot. And you know, most people that play on PCs they collect their games there. And uh, we're interested to talk about this, uh, you know, behavior that we have. I think a lot of people where, you know, we just collect games and we never play them. It's like having a gigantic library of books and we just. Don't Never sit down really and actually read, read any anything. of those books. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, pro- it's probably a big question, but like, you know, why do people obsess over collecting things, and in this case, games? Yeah, it's a that's a good question. My my research is focused on the hoarding of objects, and to some extent, the hoarding of things like animals. We touched not much on the hoarding of digital kinds of things, like emails, or in this case, it might be games. But there are a couple of things where I think there's a there's an overlap here. One of them has to do with the, this notion of opportunity. Now, I don't know if, if this is the case, but what we see in other kinds of collecting behaviors is that people have a a sense of wanting to collect opportunities. And these are mm. things that they collect that they don't necessarily take advantage of. But if they don't do it, they feel a sense of loss somehow, a sense that somehow they missed out on something. Mm. So and one possibility for this, this kind of behavior might be that it's a, it is a, a way of maintaining opportunities or collecting opportunities or things that are available to you should you decide you want to use them. Well, that makes perfect sense because I guess the one variable that's sort of um, a part of this that's sort of like hinged on it is a lot of these purchases tend to happen during what's kind of called a steam sale and they're usually seasonal so it happens four times a year and in there you find games that are like from 50 to sometimes 80% off um, so I'm almost wondering if there is something tied to this sense of, oh, but I can, like, this is such a steal. Like, why would I not capitalize on this opportunity? You know, d- do you feel like that sort of ties into that a bit? Yeah, one of the things we see in the hoarding of objects is this notion that this object is so unique that I will not be able to acquire it or to acquire it at this price at any other time. So it might be that the uniqueness of the opportunity to collect this thing for less than what it otherwise would cost might be an important part of this of this behavior. I absolutely think that way because a lot of times you think like, oh, it's 99 cents. I have to get it now. It'll never yeah. be 99 cents again, and it will be in like two more months. Yeah, and, and usually the only way I remember that a Steam sale exists is there's all this hubbub on Twitter, on these social networks. There's kind of like this um, – this social force that's pushing out like we're all capitalizing on this deal like we're all getting these amazing things and people are talking about like 
how much money they saved, you kind of want to join the conversation of like being like, yeah, I got that too. And I didn't really, I only spent like $5 on it. Like how great is that? Even though what I think it's like Ars Ars Technica did research and they found out that 37% of the games that have been sold on Steam or registered on Steam just aren't played at all. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, there's a little bit of a, a, a sort of manic high that comes along with acquiring things, and it may be that that's a part of this, that it's such a good deal, it makes you feel good to buy this because you're getting such a discount on it. One thing that kind of comes to mind for me, I'm curious to know, is, so you said the hoarding, you said the hoarding of animals um, and objects? I'm curious to know, is, is there a... Uh, is there a community aspect around that? Like, are these people like are these people that typically get involved in that, in that kind of activity? Is there a social force involved in that as well, or not so much? Yeah, good question. Not so much with the hoarding of objects, but with the hoarding of animals, sometimes there is a community involved. There, there are often people who kind of enable the person to collect a lot of, of animals. Uh, you know, often in a neighborhood, there's, there's someone who everyone in the neighborhood knows if you got a cat, you don't want anymore, you can drop it off for this person. Um, so that in some ways there is kind of a social role that this person plays in the community. Okay. Do you think the other aspect, I think you mentioned before when comparing, uh, these different forms of hoarding, like this idea of digital, it's not you know, physical, it doesn't like exist in a room, but it probably, and maybe that's like the kind of more perverse nature of it is like, you don't think about it as like, it's taking up a lot of space. It's like, but it might be weighing on your mind. I know when people see my phone, they see my, uh, my email app and there's like 30,000 unread messages (laughs) Yeah, and they're like, they're just horrified. (laughs) And, uh, and it does like, it makes you go like, Oh, I kind of feel bad about that. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It, there are some ways in which this digital hoarding is is very similar to object hoarding, but other ways it's not. And, and the ways it's not is that it it is less likely to pose some kind of impairment in the person's life because there's a lot of digital space available to most of us. The place where it does begin to interfere is in the inability to keep it organized. So you got all these emails, but if they're not organized in some way, then trying to go into them and find something sometimes gets gets to be a problem. Same is true with uh, digital files, um, text files, and so forth. Okay. But a part of it, and, and it's an, a question for you about the nature of the experience of saving a game, is often uh, people save things, including digital things, because it offers them a kind of um, personal narrative, almost like a, a chronicle of their personal history. Mm. So in some ways, it's a little bit like the, their identity, that this is a, a part of who they are, part of what's happened to them. And getting rid of it means maybe losing that identity or losing that memory of, of, of that event somehow. I think that's totally fair. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is how public our library is like each kind of user to give you a little bit of an idea. Each kind of user has like a public page that kind of shows like their playtime, how many hours they spent on something, like what they're working on. I think the the thing that that sort of reminds me of, it kind of does remind me of a physical counterpart. I'm, I'm in the middle of apartment hunting right now. 
And um, I'm thinking about, of course, I'm thinking about, like, how to fill the space or whatever. Like, I'm a designer. But, like, uh, what comes to mind for me are sort of, like, you know, bookshelves and the kind of books we have on them. Like, I think about, um, especially in my transition into, I kind of made a a personal initiative to make a big transition into having all my media just be digital. And in it, I made a little bit of a sacrifice in sort of having that bookshelf in your room that kind of chronicles everything you've read like part of your worldview like there's there's some it, it's so loaded uh uh the books you have on your bookshelf and looking at at your books there it gives you the sense of this is who i am this is what i know yeah for sure i i almost feel like less of me now that it's all gone <laughs> like it's just like, it feels so sparse you know it's almost like uh, you're not cultured <laughs> right right or you somehow lost a piece of yourself Right. Even though I'm not opening the books. <laughs> right. Right. This is true. I, Man, I don't think about uh, the design of my apartment. Like, I'm very, very minimalistic. <laughs> I was still like, I got to get a bookshelf so I could put some books on there and people will think I'm smart. Like, <laughs> but no, it is a, uh, when you mentioned um, kind of feeling um, left out, it is, it feels like a an opportunistic it feels like a game you're playing with everyone else like i need to win steam or like win uh you know get as the best sales and but there's no winning it like it's yeah. just kind of this thing that's uh you kind of obsess over for like a day or two and then it's like oh okay it's uh it's just there yeah right right you, you know what i'm kind of curious to know um of the people that you've spoken to that sort of have like uh hoarding issues do you find that there's kind of as far as motives are concerned do you find there's sort of like a spectrum of narratives that motivate them to hoard the things that they do or is it all kind of the same thing no there there is a wide variety of motives now they may all derive from the same source and they all overlap that's the interesting thing that we don't find we can't really classify people by the nature of the motive because almost all people who have this sort of hoarding tendency save for a whole bunch of different reasons they include this notion of opportunity this kind of loss of history the memory thing and here's here's something sort of interesting about it is um, you know um, what it's like when you hear a song from your childhood. Yeah, you you get a a memory for that for your childhood, but it's more than that. You get this visceral feeling. It's like you you feel the way you felt when you were a child. Mm. So it's much more than just a memory. And I think this sensory experience, this sensory cue, in that case, it's sound can be transferred in other ways, like um, through seeing an object. Seeing an object that, that, that has some sort of history for you um, may bring back that feeling that you experience. And I think that's a little bit about, about what hoarding might be about, that, that that has an intensity that's greater than it is for other people. Um, and may, that might be related to, for instance, the saving of games you you played at one point in your life where the sound of that, I can still remember the sound of, of the Mario brothers. Uh, Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so every time I hear that sound, I, I kind of go back there to that period of time. That is funny how that works. Or even if like you hear like, man, I'm sure you can like, uh, something like it's just a small ding from like an old game, like, like Sonic collecting a ring or whatever. And it just brings this flood of stuff. I think it was this, there's this film called, uh, Safety not guaranteed. 
um, Audrey Plaza. Yeah, with Audrey Plaza, the, mm-hmm. the Duplass brothers directed it. Where um, um, Mark Mark Duplass describes music as like over time as like a uh, a bookmark, uh, like an emotional bookmark, yeah. and he unpacks it the way that you do, where it's sort of like. You know, as you listen to it, especially if it kind of dealt with a, a, a particular part of your life. For me, I'm thinking like you know, transatlanticism from Death Cab or something. <laughs> like you, you remember how you felt in that moment, and uh, it brings back. And um, I, dang, I like super relate to that because even in moments where where I did kind of remove all my books from the bookshelf. I still kept the first volumes of all the old stuff that I had. Just like it's just like in a box, right? Just something, just something that I can like look at and be like, yeah. I existed then. <laughs> uh, right, right. Yeah. Well, this idea was talked about a long time ago. A Proust described this in some of the writings about. I think that I think the effect was called the Madeleine Cookie effect, where he's describing what it's like to eat this Madeleine Cookie and and um, brings back memories of of a time as a child and an aunt and you know just this really intense kind of emotion. Mm. That is also an interesting aspect is uh, it's just a matter of having it. It's not a matter of indulging it again. Right, re-enjoying like, it. Like yeah. re-enjoying it. No, it's just like I just uh-huh. want to have it just yeah. so I remember it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess part of it, though, is that there's no no reason to get rid of it, right? Because it's not really impinging on your life in any way. Which might be a little different than it is for someone who who has an object hoarding problem, where the object is actually impinging on their life. Okay, so I guess uh, to wrap it up a little bit, um, is there some uh, uh, when it comes to uh, in particular digital, you know, collecting and uh, obsessively buying things on Steam when probably shouldn't. Is there any like suggestion or remedy to like <laughs> stop doing that a bit more? Well, one of the things that I we we suggest for people is to to try to create some hypotheses for themselves that they can test. And the hypothesis might be I can't get along without this game. Uh, it might be one hypothesis that keeps people from throwing it away and and testing it out with getting rid of a game like that and then seeing how much your world is affected by that as you go forward. Um, it's really a matter of, of, of determining for you what is important and what's not. And what we find with people, especially who hoard objects, is that they keep all of these objects that they believe are important to them, but in the end they aren't. So when they get rid of them, they they basically learn that this thing really had no impact, no material impact on their life. And so that that's a, a part of what might be worth trying if someone finds that this behavior is somehow causing them some level of distress or uh, interference. Spot on. Great. Well, thanks for talking with us. Yeah, thanks. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been interesting. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! 
Up next, Forbes contributors Eric Kane and Paul Tassi discuss Microsoft's souped-up Xbox One X and predict if it can box out the Nintendo Switch this holiday season. I'm sorry. The original Xbox team lived by the mantra, there's no power greater than X. And today, we are proud to welcome the newest member of the Xbox family, fittingly named Xbox One X. Hi, I'm Eric Kane. I'm Paul Tassi. And what we were just listening to was Xbox chief Phil Spencer talking about the Xbox One X at the E3 press conference this year. And now let's take a listen to Kareem Chowdhury talking about the specs of the new console. From the beginning, our focus on game creators and you, the gamer, gave us three big goals we needed to hit. Power, compatibility, and craftsmanship. Let's talk power, which starts with the specs. Six teraflop GPU clocked at 1.172 gigahertz. 12 gigabytes of GDDR5 memory and 326 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth. And they really love their specs, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, that's I was there at the uh, Xbox One X press conference at E3, and they, they, they pretty much populate the, the ground level of this giant auditorium with the cheerleading section. They get really excited about basically every announcement, um, but especially memory bandwidth. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't get excited uh, about memory bandwidth? <laughs> I, I know, right? I, I pretty much I think about it every day. Um, and, yeah. and as I think about the Xbox One X, I just think about uh, how much memory bandwidth and those teraflops and uh, the $499 price tag. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a joke, but it is it is pretty emblematic of kind of what Microsoft is going for with the Xbox One X here, which is just kind of sheer blistering power over everything else and it's it's a pretty sharp contrast to what we've seen this past year with the Nintendo Switch which has essentially forsaken power for the ability to to go portable and allow players to play games anywhere and it's it's two kind of really diametrically opposed philosophies and it's i don't know it's it's tough to kind of think which one's going to come out on top the switch has been doing well the Xbox One X is about to come out uh, I mean, where do you think they're going to stand come, you know, after the holiday season? Well, um, I, I think that it's important to, to think about content, always to think about content first. And the Xbox One X, while it's about, I believe, four times more powerful than the vanilla Xbox One, it still doesn't have a whole lot of content coming to it in the near future. Uh you just talked about this recently, but Crackdown 3 was, was delayed into, into next year. So really the, uh, the Xbox One X is just going to be a more powerful Xbox One with sort of all the same limitations. Whereas the Nintendo Switch is getting quite a few exclusive games. Nintendo is really sort of up the ante when it comes to, uh, exclusive content. But to counter that, I guess, is that Nintendo doesn't have this entire roster of third-party games that the Xbox One X will have, and the whole like I guess the point now, since there's no real Xbox exclusives other than maybe Forza coming out, is that Xbox One X will be kind of you know quote unquote the place to play all these really huge third-party games like Call of Duty and Battlefront 2 and Assassin's Creed. But it, 
it's still kind of a tough sell um, because this is relying on a market that's going to kind of be making full use of 4K TVs when that's not really <laughs> has hasn't really saturated the market yet. And I think it's kind of a big gamble to just go for pure power without kind of any focus on exclusive content or kind of new ways to play. And we're already seeing kind of Nintendo rewarded for that, you know, based on their early Switch sales. So I'm I'm slightly concerned to, to see how the Xbox One X is going to do. I don't know about you. Well, I think, so there's a lot of things to unpack there. Um, certainly the Switch... I mean, we've all heard, you know, other other gamers say, I, and we've said it ourselves, I know, I wish we could play every game on the Nintendo Switch. You know, I wish I could play Call of Duty World War II on the Nintendo Switch because it would be great to have it just be a handheld, fully handheld, uh, you know, first-person shooter. That would be glorious. Um, the other thing that's going on is that, yes, the Xbox One X will be the most powerful console out there, and so all the games will probably look the best and play the best, but the PlayStation 4 has such a market advantage right now, uh, not just in terms of how many people own PlayStation 4s as opposed to Xbox One, but just in that they've got so many deals now with, with uh, companies like Activision for, for Destiny and for Call of Duty that, that basically, even though the Xbox One X is going to be the most powerful console, you still have, for a game like Destiny 2, exclusive content coming to the PlayStation 4, and, and then another, you have to wait another year before you get it on the Xbox One or the Xbox One X. So there's a lot of sort of steep hills to climb for Xbox One X to make any sort of dent. Uh, whereas the Nintendo Switch doesn't really face those obstacles, it's really relying on Nintendo's first party, uh, IP. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, the Switch is the Switch is an easy sell. I mean, we, there's all these super high quality Nintendo games. The concept of taking games anywhere is a no brainer, and it's it's a lot easier of a sell than it was for the Wii U and even even the original Wii, to be honest. But the Xbox One X, it's I still am trying to figure out who precisely is the market for that because again, like you said, PS4 is taken over the market, and this Xbox One X is five hundred dollars. So that's no small investment for those who want to pick it up, whether they already have a PS4, whether they already have an Xbox One. I guess the fundamental question is, yes, it's powerful, but is it powerful enough to be worth a $500 upgrade, which is very significant and something I, I'm not sure if Microsoft has kind of considered all the way through. And I, I can foresee maybe lower kind of Xbox One sales where they're not setting any records, but then Microsoft passes it off as oh, well, it's, you know, we always kind of meant it to be a niche console and it's just a premium version of, of the Xbox, so it's that's, you know, what it's supposed to be. But it's it's not something that's probably going to draw them back in line with, with PS4. And at some point, if the Switch keeps selling well, they might even get passed by that too. So that's slightly concerning. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, for the Switch right now, there's, you know, lines down the street to get a, to get a, a console at the uh, retail price and you can still find a switch, you know, for $400 pretty easily, but finding one for $300 is a lot harder. Uh, you know, I, I still wonder why they didn't just come out with a new console with backwards compatibility, but new exclusives for that console. It, it just, it feels like this half step is just not going to get them anywhere. I don't know. Am I wrong? No, I think it's, that probably would have been a better idea overall, at least from a branding perspective, because I think people are a little more skeptical of this kind of console upgrade system, particularly when the you know upgrade is five hundred dollars, which is 
just flat out buying a new console. So I, I think if Microsoft had even waited maybe another year and made even more technical advancements to make it kind of distinctive from the original Xbox One and PS4, that may have been the better option. But just kind of selling it as an upgrade and then not packaging it with almost any of its own content exclusives, that's, I, I'm not sure how it's going to go. Um, I, I think there will be a core fan base who will pre-order it on day one and it'll, it'll sell great among a certain crowd, but it's going to be harder to convince kind of existing PS4 owners to switch over or, or many kind of casual Xbox One owners that it's worth that much of an upgrade. An upgrade which also, yeah. by the way, needs <laughs> a 4K TV essentially to really get the most out of it, which is itself a thousand to two thousand dollar purchase in many cases. Right. And, and while those have gotten cheaper, if you want one that has, you know, HDR and all the bells and whistles to take advantage of the, you know, the, the console and really to take advantage of all of 4K TV's offerings, that is going to cost you quite a lot. I think by the end of 2016, Americans, about 15% of American televisions were 4K. Globally, I think it's about 5%. So there's really not a very large market for 4K still. Uh, it's, 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 I mean, I have 4K. Of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, and with, by, whereas, you know, in another year or two, that's gonna, that, that's gonna continue to rise. Um, it would have been, I, I feel like, you know, if they'd waited another year and they had, you know, Halo 6, uh, you know, or some other big sort of exclusive game to launch alongside it as a brand new console, then they would be generating a lot more excitement. And I, I think part of this is the PS4 Pro, is a pretty lackluster upgrade for PlayStation owners. I mean, definitely some of the games look better. There's no doubt about that. But it's it's still kind of, I think that people are, are looking at the Xbox One X kind of as a similar uh, upgrade path, but it's, you know, it's $500. It's a lot of money to spend. Uh, and, and it's only going to be really enthusiasts and, and press, <laughs> you know, YouTubers and, and hardcore gamers that really do that. And, you know, I'm going to get an Xbox One X, but... I'll probably still be playing Destiny and Call of Duty and a lot of the big third-party games on the, the PS4. Yeah, at a certain point, it's not it's not even about power. It's where are your friends playing games. And at this point, when the PS4 has more than double the sales of Xbox One, unless that dramatically changes, like you, you probably have a pretty good chance that friends and strangers are going to be playing on PlayStation. So even if Destiny does look better and does run in 4K... It, you may not play it on Xbox One X because you've you've been firmly established on PS4 and that's kind of where you've started it. So I think that's that's yeah. going to be another tricky aspect. Yeah, and then a lot of uh, you know graphics enthusiasts are playing on PC, you know, and, and now they can play Destiny Two on PC also. So a lot of the so that that definitely puts the Xbox One X in a very strange little niche. Whereas something like the Switch. Is, is appealing to almost, I would say to almost everybody, like kind of like the Wii was appealing to more casual gamers, the Switch does a really good job of, of not emulating the mechanics of the, of the Wii, but of that appeal, that broad appeal with a, with a price tag that also matches that appeal. I mean, $300 is a, is a great price range for a, for a console, and especially one like the Switch where you can take it on the go. Uh, where there's a surprising amount of content already available and we have Mario Odyssey coming up uh, and, you know, a pretty good holiday season ahead of us for the Switch. I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's comparing apples to oranges to some degree, but it's kind of interesting to see the success that Nintendo has had with this system 
as opposed to what I feel like is kind of not a lot of hype for the Xbox One X. I mean, are you getting the feeling that there's hype for this? Uh, well, my mentions on Twitter from all the Xbox fans t- keeps trying to convince me that there is tons of hype for it. But generally, it's it's been pretty subdued, and I think the crackdown delay has kind of put a damper on things further, and it's just, it's kind of, well, here's a list of games that will run in some, you know, f- uh, you know some version of 4K <laughs> on the Xbox One X, and they keep talking about, you know, true 4K and this and that, but there's only a scarce handful of games that are actually confirmed to be running in, in true 4K, so until that they're... If they're able to start delivering kind of every third-party game in 4K, like true 4K 60 FPS, that would be a significant achievement that would probably make everyone stand up and take notice and really be like, okay, maybe this is the console to play all these third-party games on. But without that, and with only kind of one or two examples of this happening, while everything else is still kind of some version of upconversion, I'm, I'm not sure that they can make that case quite yet, and I don't think they'll be able to make it by the holiday. Yeah, and I certainly think well, like, that's a really good point. Like, only some games are native 4K, whereas a lot of them use similar technology as the PS4 Pro to sort of uh, cheat to get 4K, which still looks good, but is is certainly not you know, kind of the advertised you know true 4K. Yeah, and TVs themselves even upconvert <laughs> also, so that you kind yeah. of have all these, all these different layers where it's tough to point to one thing and be like, ah, this is the 4K thing, that is the 4K thing. <laughs> that's that's not exactly easy to explain to to average consumers, but I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm going to get one <laughs> and you know play it a lot, but it, it I don't know if it'll become my kind of primary console, even if it is the most powerful. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I agree, uh, and again, probably because of the the things you've mentioned, like friends and just exclusive content and everything else, that still leans for to the PS4 Pro or the PS4 or the PS4 Pro. I, I wonder if Sony will then respond to this just out of spite and come out with like the PS5 in a year, then <laughs> have it be you know, because because right now the P, the the Xbox One X is still built using the same hardware that the vanilla Xbox one was made with, you know, that they've, they've engineered it in remarkable ways to be quite a lot more powerful, but it's still the same platform essentially. Whereas now we have much more powerful, uh, we have much more powerful graphics chips that we, that we could potentially use in a new console, uh, that, that consume less power and create less heat. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that they have been able to pull this much power out of that hardware and and actually even have any native 4K games like like Forza, uh, that's that's I, I got to hand it to Microsoft for for doing a remarkable engineering job with this thing. But I still think you know you put a $500 price tag on a on a console and you're just I mean it's like a repeat of the Xbox One that was $500 and it didn't go over so well. You know well, this time the $500 I, I like- price tag actually kind of even makes sense because you're right. I mean the, the amount of kind of technical stuff they've, they've put into this to make it do what it can do is pretty amazing. And for $500, it's actually a pretty good deal. Unlike the, the original, which was $500 because of Connect, which nobody wanted. But it's still, it's still a question of convincing people. Cause like, even if, even if it is impressive, the people that really hardcore care about this stuff might already be, be, uh, be playing on PC. And so it's going to be tough to get them to switch over. And then the average console people that maybe don't care as much. It's $500, and that's more than any console on the market by a wide margin. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how it does against PS4 and, and the Switch this fall. 
Yeah, and Switch isn't really a head-to-head competitor, but it is a, a Nintendo adopting a different philosophy about what gamers want, while Microsoft adopts the, the sheer horsepower philosophy. And I think one thing that that's going to happen this holiday is we're going to also see which of those companies can can meet demand. I think Microsoft is not going to have any problem meeting demand for for the Xbox One X, but it, I wonder how well Nintendo will hold up. <laughs> demand is the Achilles know? heel of Nintendo always. So yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll see how it I goes. I mean, it's also, it, it might be their secret weapon, you know, keep people wanting it, but uh, but, but given point. how hard it's been, <laughs> to a point, yeah. Given how hard it's been for them to keep up with, with demand, it will be really interesting to see what happens come the big holiday crazy, you know, Black Friday and all that stuff. Yep, definitely. Uh, anyways, yeah. I think I think uh, I think that's all you need to know about Xbox One X versus Switch. Which which one would you recommend for holiday shoppers? Probably the Switch. There's just so many good games for it this year, and five hundred dollars big commitment. So I, I'd wait and see a little bit uh, what else Microsoft has planned. Yeah, I agree. That that's that's good advice. That's good holiday shopping advice. Anyways, thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.